Amen. The whole reason we are here this morning is because we worship a resurrected king who's resurrecting us. And I want to say this right up front, like if you've never experienced that personally, my hope and my prayer is before we get out of here this morning that you will come to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Thank you for joining your church family. My name is Chan. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Spanish River. Are you guys ready to study your Bible? All right, grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 21, the last chapter in that text. We are continuing our series entitled Encountering Jesus. Uh, and so let me pray. And we will jump into our text this morning, all right? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not only given us your word, but you have given us your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, this morning as we open up your word, may you breathe life into it. May the words on the pages of our Bible jump up, jump out of the pages and grip our hearts in such a way that it will forever change our lives for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are, John chapter 21. I want to begin in verse 15. Uh, it says, when Jesus had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know, it says Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This morning, we are going to look at a conversation, an encounter that Peter had with Jesus on a beach for breakfast. Now, I have to admit, this whole week as I've been thinking about and preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but remember all the St. Peter and Pearly Gate jokes that I've heard in my life, right? You remember those, right? And so I can't resist telling you one this morning, like taking a huge risk here, all right? But here goes nothing, all right? There's this couple in Southern California, and on their wedding day, there was a big earthquake, and it swallowed them up before they had a chance to get married. And so they appeared at the pearly gates, and St. Peter greeted them, and they asked St. Peter, hey, can we still get married? And St. Peter goes, well, let me give some thought to that. 
And so a few days passed, a week passed, a month passed, six months passed, and they didn't hear hear back from St. Peter. And finally on the seventh month, St. Peter comes to them, toting a pastor behind him. And he goes, here you go, you can get married. Here's your pastor. And they were like, oh, thank you for doing that. But we have one more request. Over the past seven months, we think it might be prudent to get a prenuptial. And Peter's like, oh, are you kidding me? It took me seven months to find this pastor. How long do you think it's going to take me to find a lawyer up here? (laughs) All the lawyers have just been offended, all right? I'm not throwing shit at you. I threw pastors in there too, right? Now, here's what we're going to see this morning. Like, whether you're a pastor, a lawyer, a baker, a candlestick maker, all of us are in desperate need of redemption. Now, I think we can all relate to Peter because Peter was a man who desperately needed redemption. And he was uh, uh, one of Jesus' disciples that was always sticking his foot in his mouth. He was always speaking before he was thinking. And, and, and Peter was, um, like we, from last week, we saw that Peter was one of the first disciples, along with John, that witnessed the empty tomb after Mary Magdalene. And the chances are, uh, he was there, I mean, he was there when Jesus appeared in the upper room the first time, if you remember from last week, when Thomas wasn't there, and the second time when he was there. But this conversation is the first conversation Peter has with Jesus that's recorded in Scripture. And this morning on this beach, as the sun was appearing over the horizon, Peter would have an encounter with Jesus that would change the trajectory of his life forever. Now, the, before I begin, before I continue in this story, I want to pause here and make a big observation about this text this morning that I think will radically shape its meaning for you. Like if you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church a long time, chances are great you've heard a pastor preach on this text. And almost inevitably, I did it when I was a young pastor. Well-intentioned pastors will preach this text, and what they will often do is distinguish between the Greek verbs of love that Jesus uses in this conversation with Peter. And they will distinguish between agape love, a a divine love, and um, phileo love, which is a a, uh, man love, an earthly love. And and Peter's will often do that. And the application they will make is that the story is all about the quality of Peter's love for Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do that this morning for two reasons. The first reason is that I don't think that John distinguishes between these two verbs in the Greek. Uh, It's very important when interpreting Scripture that you always use the author's intended meaning. And so, for example here, John uses the word love uh, many times in his gospel, and he interchanges agape love and phileo love for stylistic reasons. Uh, He never seems to distinguish them for for meaning. So, for example, in John chapter uh, 3, verse 35, and 5, verse 20, he states that the Father loves the Son, but in John chapter 3, verse 35... 
he says that the father agapes the son. And then in 520, he says that the father phileos the son. Now, the love of the father for the son could not have diminished. I mean, certainly not. And so John is just using these two verbs synonymously for stylistic reasons. And so we can't read more into it than that. A great theologian, D.A. Carson, calls this an exegetical fallacy. Now, I'm not going to go into what an exegetical fallacy, other than what I already have, and to say, you don't want to do that when interpreting Scripture. And so that's the first reason I'm not going to go there. But the second reason I'm not going to go there is, is I think there is something much deeper and profound happening here in this conversation, beyond just ex- distinguishing between two Greek verbs. The story isn't about the quality of Peter's love for Jesus. The story is about the quality of Jesus' love for Peter. Now, it's not the quality of Peter's love for Jesus that redeems him. It is the quality of Jesus' love for Peter that redeems Peter. And so the point of this story is that your sin does not outmatch Jesus' love for you. And so look with me at verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think a fascinating question you have to wrestle with when studying this text is you have to ask the question, why was Peter grieved? Why was uh, Jesus asking him three times this question to which Peter was deeply hurt? Now, to answer this question, I need to give you a little bit of background to this story. The disciples had gone back to Galilee after Jesus' death and resurrection, and seven of the disciples had been out fishing all night, and they caught nothing. I can relate. (laughs) I've been there. Then suddenly, someone calls out from the shore in the early morning hours, children or loved ones, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And as soon as they did that, their nets were so full of fish, they couldn't even drag it on board. Now, John quickly realized whose voice it was that was shouting shouting from them on the beach that morning. He was the youngest disciple. He probably had the best vision, right? But Peter, as soon as he realizes who it is, he jumps out of the boat. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and note that something that John recalls that is unusual here. In verse seven, he says, Peter put on his coat. Now, what is strange about that is when people are about ready to jump out of a boat into a water, they don't put their coat on, right? They would take their coat off. Now, John records that he puts his jacket on. And so if you're here struggling this morning, if you're struggling to really believe that the Bible is true, I want you to consider this evidence. Like, if John was just making this story up, why would he put that unusual detail in it 
unless it really happened. And so here's what I want you to think that, that and, and scripture is full of things like this that make you think, wow, he's not just making up some random story. He's actually telling a story that happened as it happened, as unusual as that might be. And so, okay, back to the story. Jesus made a coal fire and was already cooking fish for breakfast, fish and bread. Not my cup of tea, but their cup of tea. And it's here in this early morning hour as the sun is peeking over the horizon that Peter encountered Jesus in such a way that it would forever change his life. And so sitting around a coal fire brought back incredibly painful memories for both Peter and Jesus. A brief time had passed since Peter had been sitting around another coal fire a coal fire in a high priest's home on the night that Jesus was arrested. It was just after Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, it records that Jesus tells his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter doesn't answer Jesus saying, man, I know that I'm weak. I know that I'm susceptible to denying you if things get really tough. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your power. I can't do it on my own. No, that's not what Peter says. He replies to Jesus saying, though all of these other disciples fall away, I won't. Not like the rest of these guys. My love for you is stronger than any of these guys. This is what Peter is doing. Peter looked down his nose at the other disciples because he was his own savior. His heart was filled with pride, not love. He was using Jesus rather than serving Jesus. And he was his own savior rather than Jesus being his savior. You see, Peter's filled with this self-reliant righteousness. He is convinced that his relationship with Jesus is based upon the quality of his love for Jesus rather than the quality of Jesus' love for him. He is convinced his relationship with Jesus is based upon his own strength and his own power. But Jesus tells him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You know how the story plays out, right? Sure enough, that very night, huddled around a coal fire, Peter denies his Savior to two different servant girls and a stranger standing by. He invokes a curse upon himself, swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. And only Luke 22 records this. Jesus has come out and he's being led across the courtyard and he turns to Peter and looks at him, and their eyes connect, and the rooster crows. Peter left that night broken and went out and wept bitterly. And now, back to John 21, we see Peter sitting around this coal fire with Jesus desperately needing redemption. And so here's the first thing I want you to see about Peter's story. It's like, Peter, we all need redemption. Whether you're a pastor, a lawyer, a baker, a candlestick maker, we all need redemption. It's obvious that Peter needed redemption. 
Far too often, many of us, like Peter, live with regret. Our lives are defined by something we have done in our past rather than what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Your regrets hold you in a prisonment of shame and guilt and condemnation. But here's what Peter's story serves to remind us. Your regrets are not bigger than Jesus' ability to redeem. Let me let that sink in for a moment. Your regrets, your sins in the past are not bigger than Jesus' ability to redeem. This is why Jesus is going deep with Peter. He's pressing deep into his heart. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is now asking Peter, do you love me more than these three times? You see, Jesus is asking, is the quality of your love for me greater than these? But this time around, Peter confesses, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Notice that he's not comparing his love to the other disciples now. Jesus is bringing him to the end of himself. Jesus is doing a deeper work in Peter than he ever expected, and it hurt him. It cut him to the heart. Now, I think one of the reasons we relate to Peter so much is that all of us have come to Jesus at some point in time thinking that we just needed a little help. We just needed a life coach, not realizing that we were dead in our sins, needing new life. We thought we could save ourselves with a little help from Jesus. We didn't realize how much of a deep work of the gospel we needed. We needed a Savior who would go to the very depths of our hearts and rid us of self-reliance and self-righteousness so that we could depend completely on Him and Him alone to be our Savior. And this is what Jesus is doing with Peter by pressing him deep with these three questions. C.S. Lewis put it, put this so poetic, uh, poetically in the voyage of the dawn treader. I, I loved reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my girls growing up. Uh, there's this boy named Eustace, and everybody hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish, he's mean, and nobody can get along with him. But he finds himself magically on a boat called the dawn treader, taking a great voyage. And at one point, this boat pulls into an island, and Eustace wanders off and finds a cave. The cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold. He thinks, I'm rich. And immediately, because of who he is, he thinks, now I'll be able to get revenge. Anyone who's ever laughed at him, stepped on him, slighted him, will now get his vengeance. Eustace then falls asleep on the pile of treasure, which he doesn't yet know is a horde of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with greedy dragon as thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he becomes a dragon, big, terrible, and ugly. Soon he realizes there's no way out. He can't go back to the boat. He's going to be left on the island of Lone, and he's going to be horrible all of his life, and he falls into despair. But one day, the great lion Aslan shows up, 
and leads them to a clear pool of water and tells them to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realizes that undress means to take off the dragon skin. And so he begins to gnaw and claw off the scales. And he realizes that he could shed his own skin on his own. Working at it, he finally peels off this skin. But to his dismay, he finds that underneath he's got another dragon skin. He tries a second time and a third time. To no avail, the same thing happens each time. In the end, Aslan says, you're going to have to let me go deeper than that. And here's how Eustace tells the story later. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I had turned into a boy again. For many of us, it's a hard passage to read. It grips our heart because like Peter, like Eustace, we thought if we just got a little bit of help, we could save ourselves. But we learned that Jesus wanted to take us much deeper. We have to let him use his claw and go all the way down to the bottom of our hearts to reconfigure and reorient our hearts towards him. He brings us to the end of ourselves to see the true depths of our sin so that we can see how truly glorious a savior he is. That's True redemption. Now here's the second thing I want you to see about Peter's story is that God loves to use broken people. Jesus loves to use broken people. If you're sitting here this morning believing that God can never use you because of something in your past, Peter's story blows up that myth, right? He loves to use broken, redeemed people. Each time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied each time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds each time saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You see what's happening here? Something absolutely amazing is happening here. Jesus is not only redeeming Peter to himself, he's redeeming Peter to his mission. And it's not because of the quality of love that Peter has for Jesus. It's because of the quality of love that Jesus has for Peter. You see, here's what's amazing. Jesus is restore, restoring Peter to his mission, not because of what Peter has done, but because of what Christ has done for him on the cross. 
You see, true gospel ministry requires of you to rely on God's Spirit for everything. Now, here's why. We are created to find our greatest joy and deepest satisfaction in glorifying God in everything we do. When we are deeply dependent upon God, when we serve Him and He works mightily in and through us, God gets all the glory. There's no doubt in who's doing the work. And so, it's obvious the ministry we do is a work of God in and through us. And it keeps us from ministering out of a prideful, self-reliant, self-glorifying way. Which brings incredible joy to us as we are created. Now I see this happen most often in broken people. Broken people have a strength and confidence to do ministry that is not based on what they have done or haven't done, but on what Christ has done for them on the cross. Now, yesterday evening I was at the beach with my wife and some friends, and um, I was bemoaning the fact that since Wednesday afternoon I had been running a fever and this low-grade fever and a headache. Don't worry, it's not covid we already ruled that out, but it's like Wednesday is my sermon prep day, and I don't know if you know this, but it's really hard to be creative with a headache, right? And so all week I was just battling this low-grade fever and this headache, trying to write a sermon, and it wasn't coming together. And so last night I was on the beach with my wife and friends, probably should have been home, you know, doing sermon prep, but uh, it's just like bemoaning the fact how tired and how little energy and creativity I had for sermon prep this week and um, all of a sudden it dawned on me on the beach that it's not about me it's like it, 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 it doesn't matter like I need to be reliant on God's spirit I need to be completely dependent upon his spirit now I realize that preaching prep is important, but it's not near as important as relying on God's Spirit. So often we think it's about us. Yesterday someone said, well, I haven't seen you in church in weeks. And I'm like, I preached last week. <laughs> we so often think it's about us, and it's so not. Now, listen. Prepping for sermons is important, but not near as important as relying on the Holy Spirit. Like, reading theology books is important, but as great as that is, it's not more important than relying on the Holy Spirit. Oh, reading parenting books is really, really important. I encourage you to do it. But when it comes to parenting, nothing is more important than being completely dependent upon His Spirit. Like, reading business books, reading leadership books are really, really important. But it, when it comes to being a business person who works in such a way that God is glorified, nothing is more important to flourishing in business than being reliant upon God's Holy Spirit. I wish I had 10 minutes to unpack that in detail. But there's nothing more important than relying on the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. I don't have a slide for this, but write it down. Read it later. It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect 
in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Look, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, he is strong. When I am weak, he gets all of the glory. His power is demonstrated in our weaknesses. I think to some degree, if you're not living beyond your own capacity and your own comfort, then you aren't living the life that God called you to. Last night after I got back from the beach, um, I just went to bed early. I was like, listen, God, if you don't come through, I'm through. You know, if this sermon bombs, Ron's going to fire me, right? But I went to bed, absolutely my whole confidence was in God's spirit to work in and through me. And I'll be honest with you, you're not getting much of me this morning. My mind and body at home in bed, right? You're getting all spirit or you're getting nothing this morning. But it's okay. I think that's an okay way to live. It's not always an easy place to live, but I love to live in such a way that if God doesn't come through, I'm through. It's called faith. And he gets all the glory. Now, the conversation in verse 18 takes an amazing twist. It seems strange at first, but dig in with me. Jesus tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? Well, verse 19 tells us. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus is explaining to Peter that if you truly love me, if you see the full depth of my love for you that was demonstrated by what I accomplished for you on the cross, then you'll realize that I am worth surrendering your whole life to. So here's the third thing I want you to see about Peter's story. is that Jesus is worth surrendering your whole life to. When you see what a glorious Savior you have in Christ Jesus, your only response is to say, everything I have and everything I am belongs to you. And even though your relationship with Jesus is not based upon the quality of your love for Jesus, but the quality of his love for you, when you experience Jesus' love for you, your devotion deepens and your passion for him burns brighter. When you experience a deep work of the gospel in your life, it leads to radical generosity. Jesus tells Peter, stretch out your hands and follow me. Like when you're captivated by the quality of Jesus' love for you, you can no longer live like this, like Eustace. You live like this because you see the vertical response to the gospel is, God, everything I am and everything I have belongs to you. And the horizontal response to the gospel is outstretched hands, generosity. Now, Jesus then says, follow me. 
Follow me. John brings us full circle. At the opening of the very first chapters of the book of John, we see Jesus calling Peter to follow after him. And now in the last chapter of John, Jesus again is calling Peter to follow after him. What's different this time is that Peter knows now more than ever what it means to follow after Christ. He has had the gospel do a deep work in his heart, reorienting his heart away from the self-reliant, self-centered, self-righteousness towards a deeply reliant, God-glorifying heart. Peter would go on to preach the sermon at Pentecost in which 2,000 people came to Christ and launched the New Testament church. He wrote at least two epistles in our New Testament, First and Second Peter and perhaps Hebrews. Ultimately, Peter died crucified with his arms outstretched for his Savior's cause. That's Peter. That's Peter's story. And I can't wait to meet him in heaven. He's probably going to greet me at the pearly gates and tell me some St. Peter and pearly gates joke that I could have gone all of eternity without hearing. Right? That's Peter's story. What about your story? Have you experienced the deep work of the gospel to bring you to the end of yourself? Have you experienced God's mercy and grace in such a way that you've seen the true depth of your sinfulness and now see how glorious the Savior Jesus really is? Have you experienced the deep work of the gospel in such a way that you live your life with outstretched hands saying, Jesus, everything I am and everything I have belongs to you. I will follow you. My prayer is that God's spirit will do a deep work in you. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often I find myself wanting to rely on my own work, on my own power, on my own righteousness. Rather than completely surrendering to you and relying on your work on the cross, your power, and your righteousness. Oh, Jesus, forgive me for trying to be my own Savior. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you do a deep work in our hearts so that with every moment of our lives and with every breath, we may sing of your goodness and your grace and your glory in everything we do. That we would sing, Jesus, everything I am and everything I have belongs to you because you truly are a glorious Savior. Let's worship our risen King.